Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall and today we will be looking at America by Claude Mackay. Um, thank you for listening. Anyway, I, I, I tend to just zoom straight into things, but let me just say whoever you are listening right now, um, I'm very glad to have your attention and I will try and honour it by getting on the poetry. But for now, whether you are washing the dishes, whether you are in a dead end town at two o'clock in the morning, um, cutting through your local park, even though the gates have been shut, but you know a little hole in the hedge and you're on your way across this park to the other side of the park where there is an all night garage where you are able to buy a pot noodle and return back to your flat to resume viewing aimless YouTube videos. Whoever you are, whatever you're doing, thank you for listening. And I'm going to get on with things right now. Um, and we're going to talk about Claude Mackay. Claude Mackay was a poet um, associated with the Harlem Renaissance. The Harlem Renaissance was a movement, one perhaps one of the first great uh, black American arts, not just the literary movement, it incorporated many other arts as well, including um, famously jazz music. Uh, this is when Harlem became a cultural epicenter in a sense. Um, Harlem was, was basically populated by many African Americans who had moved up from the South to find work in New York. And they, they clubbed together. They, they founded their own communities and at points also they founded their own businesses. And I think that was an important step towards that sort of autonomy, especially leaving the South behind and the sort of the, the origins and the reasons and the diasporic aspect of why so many African-Americans were in the South. So it's to sort of get away from that legacy of, of slavery in one sense, to find greater autonomy as well to find work. But also when they, when they went to Harlem, they ran into that, the, in some ways, the same old racism, in other ways, a different kind of racism. So the Harlem Renaissance, as we said, we had many, many poets, many artists and jazz music, perhaps the most famous poets associated um, with the Harlem Renaissance was um, obviously Langston Hughes. Langston Hughes was one of the most popular poets of his time. At a time when the poetry reading was seen as being in decline, mainly because of stuff like radio and other media, um, there was very much the idea of, 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 this is something I go into a lot when I teach poetry and performance, but the, the idea of poetry is something that's read aloud was quite common people would find entertainment from reading books to each other that's what they would do they would play sheet music they would read books they would create their own entertainment so reading a book wasn't this silent thing that you do on a train in order to avoid other people reading a book was very much an out loud social activity but this went into decline one of the first things that's took it into decline, apart from obviously rising levels of literacy. So with rising letter levels of literacy, more people were able to read privately. It felt like less of a selfish act to read silently when you were in the company of people that couldn't read. 
for a start. But the other thing that added to this was was the advent of the wireless, the advent of radio, and how radio certainly public reading went into decline because of that. Not just and, and reading as a social activity rather than a private one went into decline. And then as other media came in, reading definitely has become the private activity that it is today. When people buy a book, they don't tend to get home and say, "I've got a book. Let's all read this book together." We do it with our children, and then we kind of go into our little clammy little self shells, um, our little monads, and we experience the way in that slightly isolated and fragmented sense that we have come to associate with the spirit of modernism. So, moving back into the poetry of the Harlem Renaissance, so Langston Hughes was a good example. He was very popular in his readings, perhaps so, even though the poetry reading was declining. It had a obviously had a boom from the 1950s onwards, and it, now obviously it's a big thing. Poetry readings, in that sense, it's a massive part of poetry and spoken word and slam, and other genres of the performed poem. But but Langston Hughes and Dylan Thomas used to pack out auditoriums. I don't think they read together, but they were two of the most popular public reading poets of their time. So we do associate the, the, the Harlem Renaissance with the public readings. We also associate the Harlem Renaissance with the civil rights movement. Now, while there was certainly a degree of, of African-American and black autonomy within Harlem, at the same time, within the arts, especially, um, there was still patronage. It's, you know, white patronage as well. Sure. White liberal patronage patronage to people that could have been considered as um as supporters or allies or whatever you want to call them but it was still a feeling i guess that was identified by later um african-american poetry movements such as the the black art movement that they that, that no matter how well-meaning the patronage is it's still a form of domination it's still a form of control and uh, the only way to really liberate yourself as an artist, as a, as, a, as a minority artist, is to find that real autonomy. I can agree with that sentiment. But at the same time, I can see why um, it chimed with the, the why that there was a certain inclusiveness to the um, Harlem Renaissance. So um, with the Harlem Renaissance, definitely it was tied up with what we would call the civil rights movement. While later on, the black art movement in the 60s and 70s, you could more associate with the movement of black power that was more to do with black autonomy. But with Langston Hughes, for example, one of his most famous poems i too you could say is a poem about inclu inclusion and and equality and i think a lot of the movements and the civil rights movements uh, that are related to the harlem renaissance that was um i think that was an important ethos that that ethos of we must be equal we must be included whereas the black art movement and later sort of like later African-American emancipatory movements had more of a kind of a flip the bird to white power attitude and to say, no, we, we make our own power. We don't need inclusion. You know, we are autonomous. Another thing about the, uh, about Harlem at the time actually is, um, and of course, as it has historically, Harlem had its problems but uh, Harlem was a place uh, still seen as an ex exciting place to go to. So um, people wanted to get white people from from other parts of Manhattan wanted to go to Harlem to check out jazz music, to check out all the cultural happenings. It was a very hip place. 
let's say. Um, and, and I don't know if it had the same reputation that it had in later parts of the 20th century when Harlem was seen as a bit of a no-go area for people that didn't live there. Um, because of uh, crime and the, and the problems and the social issues um, within that area. So there, there were issues that were dealt with, and I think there were tensions between Harlem Renaissance poets as well in how they, t they tackled the problems and the issues of Harlem. Some Harlem Renaissance poets wanted to show Harlem as, as they wanted to ennoble the spirit of the African-American. They did not want to dwell on the problems of, of Harlem. And Claude Mackay was certainly a poet who did not shy away from showing those problems. Now, Claude Mackay, he didn't necessarily, he did come up from the South, but not in the way that you thought he did. Um, he, he, he was born in Jamaica and he grew up in Jamaica in um, a place in a, in a, I can't remember if it was a town or a village that was, that was locally known as, as Sunnyville. It was a place that was mainly populated by black Jamaicans. And he didn't really experience racism until he went to work in Kingston. Kingston having a bigger white population and the black population who, was, who were confined to doing menial work and menial jobs. And the white population being the people with the riches, the wealth and the political influence as well. So that sense of racism he experienced for the first time when he left his, his left Sunnyville and, and, went to Jim, and went to Kingston Town. Now, like a lot of the poets I've spoken about in this podcast, he was one of his poets. Some, some came from rich backgrounds, some came from poorer backgrounds, some weren't able to necessarily educate themselves in the same way because they were women. But with, with um, Claude Mackay, his brother, his brother was a teacher. And so his brother looked after him, but he also educated him as well. And I mean, his brother wasn't just some guy. Um, who you know? Who I'm, I'm not belittling teachers here, but his his brother was was quite the hardcore intellectual. Um, he, he he yes, he was a teacher, but he kind of struck me more as an academic. Again, teachers do an amazing job that I wouldn't be able to do, but um, some you know to be an academic, you need the time to do that as well. And teachers these days certainly don't necessarily get the time to follow uh, an intense regimen of research into one particular area. Um, so, so Uriah Theopolis Mackay, his much, his much older brother, he, he, yes, he was a teacher, but he was also translating the work of um, Schopenhauer from German into English as well. So, so Claude Mackay, he loved poetry and he, 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 he learnt he read and loved the poetry of alexander pope and the romantics lots of english poets but he also learnt about science and he also learnt about theology and he also learnt about philosophy and when you read the prose and when you read the letters and the critical prose of, of claude mckay claude mckay was very knowledgeable about a lot of stuff and this really came out in his critical prose it came out in his poetry as well we'll go on to how his poetry might have different differed in a while but his critical prose it just showed how knowledgeable the man was in so many areas he, he was quite the hardcore intellectual he knew scientific terminology he knew philosophical terminology as well which you don't normally come to expect from a lot of poets nowadays especially any poets since since the romantics being that uh, poetry is often associated with our our fifis our feelings rather than our intellect so Mackay. um 
was the intellectual, but he was also an instinctual guy, and he wrote about the sort of life of the body as well. And a lot of people say that a lot of his work was tied up with this duality, the duality of one sense of a sort of intellectual nature, and then the duality of a feeling nature as well, which I guess he would have got from the Romantic poets. He then was mentored by an Englishman who lived nearby called Walter Jekyll, and it was actually this Englishman who said to Claude Mackay, that you should stop writing like these English guys. It's great that you're influenced by them, but you're Jamaican and you should start writing in your own dialect. And when, when Mackay published his first poetry anthologies, I've read this online. I, 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 and it's the kind of claim that I might treat with some skepticism, but I accept it for now is that his, his poetry anthologies were the first published poetry anthologies to feature Jamaican dialect. Such a big thing about Caribbean poetry now, the importance of that Jamaican dialect in Caribbean poetry, especially with the dub poets such as Mikey Smith and Linton Kwesi Johnson. You, you know, the, the dialect is part of the identity, the social identity and the aesthetic. You know, it's indistinguishable. You cannot separate those. But, you know, this is one of the first poets that, that, that used this. Well, the, and the first poet that was published using this dialect in his poetry was Claude Mackay. Now, some of his later works weren't written this way. The reason why is because he went to America. He went, um, he studied actually, I think with his first collection, he did quite well and he was awarded a grant where he went to America to study. He went down south. He went to uh, Kansas and Alabama. He studied there. And then like any great artist, ignore what I've just said if you're one of my students, but like any great artist, again, if you're one of my students, this is a lie. I'm just saying it to, to, to you know, make, make the, the listeners feel better about themselves. But for God's sake, stick with your studies. But like uh, many great artists, he dropped out. He dropped out and he headed up to New York, headed up to Harlem. And that's where he made contact with other poets and artists in that community in Harlem. And again, he experienced, it's quite strange because I'm sure he would have experienced racism in the South, but he, he experienced that New York flavor of racism when he went to Harlem. And a lot of his work came about from that experience, including his, his most famous poem, his most well-known poem, If We Must Die, which is a sonnet. And the poem we're going to look at, America, is also a sonnet. If We Must Die, I was almost going to look at this poem today, but I decided to go with America instead. One, because If We Must Die is a famous poem. You'll find it anywhere. But If We Must Die is also one of those poems that ended up transcending its origins. So as a poem that was part of the civil rights movement... It's important, but it sort of it it became a poem that's a sort of rallying cry to any oppressed people. It it's not necessarily specific in its details, even though we can really read the struggle of of African Americans against the brutality and the animalistic and stupid forces of of white racism. It's a poem that many other struggles could adopt as well, including Winston Churchill. Um, was meant to be a fan of that poem as well who certainly was not a man that when we look into the details of his life we find to be that much of an ally for racial equality especially with his relationship to India 
we, we we still see how he was able to take that and to sort of transpose that to the British situation of a country with its back to, against the wall as um, Nazism was knocking at the door. So I didn't go with that poem. I went to the poem America instead. He he also, it's interesting, I think he had many differences of opinion with, with I'm going to kind of go through the biography now and then read the poem and then we'll go over the poem afterwards, by the way. I think it's easier to do it this way. I like his life story. He's an interesting guy, aren't they all? Um, but yeah, so he he wasn't necessarily so he he wasn't a fan of NAACP. They were sort of far too middle class, affluent, uh, bourgeois for him. He wasn't really involved in the religiously motivated civil rights movements either. And I think it's quite interesting that when we do find a kind of civil rights movement, there normally needs to be some other kind of bedrock to it. It being God in one sense. And certainly when we look at Martin Luther King, when we look at Malcolm X, we find religious faith in both of them being that sort of bedrock. But the bedrock that Claude Mackay found was similar to the bedrock that many other black liberational and, you know, emancipatory movements found. And that is Marxism. So Claude Mackay, he was a socialist. He was definitely a socialist, but he also went to Russia a few times and uh, got to know the communists. And while it never sort of came out in his lifetime that he embraced full on communism, he was certainly a leftist and a socialist all of his life. And he uh, um, but he might have also been a communist, too. But obviously, you know, communism in America um, even though he kind of died before McCarthyism really kicked in, still to be a communist in America was a dangerous thing in the 20th century. So Mackay, um, he was a socialist. He was an atheist as well, as many socialists were. Um, this, this changed near the end of his life. I want to talk about this later. He became, in the later years of his life, he became a Catholic. But he always said that his Catholicism would, would he was not going to stop being a person to work for social change. He was never going to stop that. The Catholicism was not going to be anything that would, would that would end that drive within his being. So, yes, he, and another thing, so another few little things. He, so he wrote sonnets. We're going to talk about the style afterwards. He he still knew the modernists. He, there were still aspects of modernism that we can find in in his work. When he was in Europe, when he travelled around Europe, um, he got very ill. He got a respiratory illness. Um, a lot of his work that he did, he used to work as a train attendant in the States. So he still did a lot of manual jobs or just a lot of a lot of the jobs that are obviously non-academic jobs in order to make ends meet. And one job he did when he was in Europe was he was an artist's model as well. So when he had his respiratory illness and he probably couldn't do a lot of the physical jobs, even though being an artist model is a physical, physically demanding job as well. He um he worked as an artist model for some cubist painters, I think. If you're going to be an artist model and you were in any way shy about your body being on show, then I think being an artist model for a cubist painter isn't, isn't a bad thing, is it? It's not as if anyone's going to look at that painting and go, wait a minute, I know those two adjacent rectangles and spheres with that pointy sort of cone triangular shape too. <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute that's claude they're not going to do that are they of a cubist painting i guess people knew anyway but uh you know the abstraction does its work doesn't it so he 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 certainly was a modernist even though modernists look down on his use of the old forms now i want to talk about the old forms after i've read the poem 
which I'm going to do about now, I think. I think I've said enough about that. Oh, one more thing. One more thing about his biography. He was also probably bisexual as well. So even though he married his childhood sweetheart and he liked ladies, he, he also was welcomed within gay communities. And there are, um, within his poems, there are sort of references that are probably references to gay love or his bisexual lifestyle. I like this guy. I like the I like the idea of a sort of intellectual how how an individual artist as well can become a sort of war within their being between the, the intellectual and then the instinctual and the physical at the same time and how they how you can bring if you can't bring these together then bring the conflict between the two into your work instead I think would be my advice to anyone stuck in that situation if you are in any situation in your life where you feel that you are the the product of of contradictory dueling voices then just bring that contradiction into your work if there is a crack in your being then bring that crack into your work that's what i say i think it's time to read this poem and then i can carry on waffling and then i can go off on one and then i can go to my daughter's school and drop off her violin before i pick up the the smaller one that's my day how's your day doing it's fine let's read a poem America by Claude Mackay Although she feeds me bread of bitterness And sinks into my throat her tiger's tooth Stealing my breath of life I will confess I love this cultured hell that tests my youth Her vigour flows like tides into my blood Giving me strength erect against her hate Her bigness sweeps my being like a flood. Yet, as a rebel fronts a king of state, I stand within her walls with not a shred of terror, malice, nor a word of jeer. Darkly, I gaze into the days ahead and see her might and granite wonders there. Beneath the touch of time's unerring hand, like priceless treasures sinking in the sand. That was America by Claude Mackay. A sonnet. I really enjoyed reading it. That's the first thing I really get a sense of. And maybe it's because technically it's a, a modern poem. It's a 20th century poem. Maybe it's because it's written in, in, in a familiar English dialect, I guess, that uh, maybe I would have had more of a challenge reading one of his Jamaican dialect poems. It's certainly universal in senses of its message, but I just love the feel of the language. I love the way it tripped off my tongue. I love the passion of the poem that seems to embed it, embedded within it. Um, I, I, how can I compare this to, to other poems in, in the Harlem Renaissance? I think of I Too in which um, Langston Hughes says, I will be sat at the table. You know, I will be eating at the same table as you, America. And certainly this poem doesn't condemn America. It, it does in a sense, well, actually it does. What am I talking about? <laughs> it actually really does condemn America. I'm saying it doesn't condemn America in that, say, in that way. He's saying, up yours, America. I hate you, America. He loves America. He condemns it in a different way at the end of the poem. Um, so, but it is, it's, it's this idea that there is something about America that gives him strength. There's a, there's a, there's a, this whole poem is about contradiction. This whole poem seems to sort of bite into its own tail. 
Um, so there is the contradiction that America is the thing that gives him, she feeds him bread of bitterness and sinks her tiger's tooth into his throat and she steals his breath of life. His breath is being stolen. She's feeding him bitter bread. He should be getting weaker. But yet, you know, he confesses, I love this cultured hell. Cultured hell. In another poem, he writes about Broadway and about how he, how he loves the lights of Broadway. He loves it. And yet he feels loneliness inside. Again, that contradiction in his being. And, and so there's a contradiction here of him loving this cultured hell that tests his youth. And her vigour flows like tides into my blood. So she might be, not be feeding... The bread she gives him is, is not good susten, sustenance. It is not nourishing. Um, but her energy seems to feed into him and brings him vigour. Um, giving me strength erect against her hate. I could not read that line without anything but the full, you know, double entendre energy that it that it deserves. Um, I don't think he would be naive when he says erect like standing upright, or erect like standing upright. He he, I think he means both. There's a visceral energy to this poem, a visceral energy. Again, that idea, the visceral quality of life in contradiction within the same individual at war with the intellectual way of being alive and in the world. And then the poem turns a little bit about the turn in a minute. So, you know, her bigness sweeps my being like a flood. So that, that those first, first seven lines, not eight lines, no octave. No sestet here, but after seven lines, when he talks about how America kind of bites him and malnourishes him and yet fills him up with vigor and energy, he changes the tone a little bit and speaks about the future of America and how he addresses America. So yet, as a rebel fronts a king of state, I stand within her walls with not a shred of terror, malice, nor a word of jeer. He doesn't hate America. He's not condemning America in that sense. He is a rebel, but there's something about America that he loves, that he wants to keep. In fact, there's something about America that he wants to use against the aspects of America that are keeping him down. Final four lines. Darkly I gaze into the days ahead and see her might and granite wonders there. Beneath the touch of time's unerring hand, like priceless treasures sinking in the sand. Those of you who are acquainted with your romantic poets will certainly get the quite thinly disguised reference at the end of that poem. If you're not that into them, we'll go over it anyway. Well, guys, don't worry, I'm not some snob who's going to leave you behind here. Um, but a quick bit of attention to that, that first line of those final four lines, darkly I gaze into their day into the days ahead i i don't think we can we we as as an african-american again there's a double play in that darkly isn't there the, the poem is all about his position in america as a black man and i think that darkly would have been one of the romantic poets would have used that phrase maybe a victorian poet would have used that phrase again as well darkly i gaze you know with my my bad mood but i think also there's a reference i think we we can also read that as a as a reference to his blackness as well his particular way of looking at america as a black man even though he's a black man in some ways channeling 
the rebellious spirit of the romantic poet Percy Bysshe Shelley, who wrote a poem that you probably know. If you don't, go read it. Go read it right now. You'll go read it. And then you realize I did know this poem um, because I I heard it in a trailer for the final series of Breaking Bad or something like that. But the poem Ozymandias by um, Percy Bysshe Shelley that was written after looking at the Ramesses bust at the British Museum. And he wrote this poem, you know, about Ozymandias. I'm Ozymandias, king of kings. Uh, look into my, my works, you mighty, and despair. He writes about this, this traveller in an antique land. He tells him about how he saw this ruined statue of a, a great and terrible leader with his great proclamation. But of course, this statue is now worn down to pretty much nothing. There is nothing left of this of his great leader's legacy. Um, Horace Smith also, another poet called Horace Smith. There was a little bit of a competition between Horace Smith and 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 um, Percy Bysshe Shelley, set between the two of them, because that's what the Romantics did quite a lot. They had little mini competitions, little mini contests among themselves, and that was to write a poem in, rela in relation to that statue. And they both wrote a sonnet in relation to that statue. Um, I'm going to do Ozymandias another time, so I don't want to go into too much detail. So. We certainly see the echo of Ozymandias and see, you know, when he says, Darkly I gaze into the days ahead and see her might and granite wonders there beneath the touch of time's unerring hand, like priceless treasures sinking in the sand. We, we see it, don't we? We see that he's saying all these great skyscrapers, all these great tall buildings are going to be just like that statue of Ozymandias. You know, that you are America, you are the great power, but your time will come. Because every empire and every nation's time will come. Maybe that gives him strength as well. These things that he loves that tower over him, they're also transcendent. Whatever the weight they crush him with, their own weight will be crushed down by something else. And time is normally that something else. Uh, so I don't know if that gives him strength as well or whether he finds strength in sort of feeling that I'm not the only one that felt this way. You know, Shelley felt this way too when he spoke out against tyranny. So we have a sonnet here. Now, we think of modernism and we think about how modernism is about people casting aside those, those old forms. We looked at a prose poem by Amy Lowell last week and now we're looking at a sonnet. But... I totally understand. I think there's two things I can get from this. One, he's changing the sonnet. He's adding his own flavour to the sonnet. Modernism isn't necessarily always about casting the old aside. It's about making it new. And I think he makes it new. He takes the old and makes it new in his own way with his sonnet. Um, especially with something that happens in the structure of the sonnet, which I will talk about in a minute. But So he was looked down upon, especially after his death. You know, someone who used these traditional forms. But when people write work that is revolutionary and emancipatory, it is interesting that sometimes the old forms are chosen. And as I have said already many times, there's something about those old forms that seems to be almost primal, almost unconsciously existing within the, at least the sort of, the, the psyche of certain language speakers. And... I, uh, as, as, as Don Patterson said, I think I've quoted this, if we forgot about the sonnet today, if it was wiped from our collective memories, it would be invented again by tomorrow. There's just something primal about that we square poem. 
So that's why I understand why if you want to convey the revolutionary idea and a revolutionary spirit, I understand why you use an old form because those old forms, no matter who used them before, whether they were some aristocratic parlor trick within the court to win favor from the queen, it doesn't matter. There's something primal about it and you can use that to find people to push your message out to other people. So how is this sonnet not a typical sonnet? I would say, for me, so we've talked about contradiction that's almost inherent within the subject matter of this poem, and we've talked about the contradiction that is inherent within Mackay's work. Um, a quick reference to something, actually, and uh, he, he wrote um, a novel um, by the title of Home to Harlem, and one particular uh, Harlem Renaissance author did not like it. That was W-B-E, W-E-B, Dubois. He hated it. He hated its portrayal of Harlem. Mainly because Dubois was more of a propagandist. And certainly within civil rights, there was a, there was a disfavor for, for portraying the social problems of black communities because they feel that, that, uh, that would, that would cheapen the the that would that would in the collective imagination that would allow racists to carry on saying you see look at them look at them they're animals um so to to portray the problems of harlem that were happening they felt no we can't do this we must ennoble our people we must project the the true noble image of our people to show that you know to, to, to work towards equality now other other movements within black art certainly have been about showing the social problems. That is part of a struggle. I talked about NWA and how they related to the ballad um, in the Twa Corby's episode two of his podcast. Ain't listen to it. Go listen to it. Go on after this one. You've done enough of this one now, but you get the idea that he, that he has to talk about those problems. Now within this novel, there's two characters, two brothers, and one of them is someone living in that into intuitional world, that sensory world, that physical world, um, that world of feeling and emotion. One of the brothers, he's in love with, um, I think a former prostitute. And at the same time, the other brother, um, he's an intellectual, but his intellectual reading of everything around him plunges him into despair. So, those brothers represented that contradictory nature, I think, within Claude Mackay himself as an intellectual, but as someone who also had that, that feeling, who wanted to write about that feeling and that emotional truth, the poet and the intellect, I guess, the romantic poet and the intellect living within the same soul. And I think this manifests itself in the poem, not just in this contradiction, but the poem that I, I spoke about the turn. Now we spoke about the turn or the volta in a sonnet, particularly in an Italian sonnet. The volta normally comes um, but the, the turn normally comes about sort of two thirds through the poem. And when we look at the fraction, when we look at the ratio, it very much resembles the golden ratio of composition. The aesthetically pleasing place to split something up is to go just beyond the halfway point and split it up. If you have a canvas, for instance, and you're doing a painting on it, it's better to kind of go that little bit further from halfway and have that line down there so that if you look at Mondrian or a Renaissance painting in composition, the eye tends to just flow across it better. 
if you really want to create tension and schism within a canvas or anything else, do a line straight down the middle. Um, and the eye doesn't know where to go. It's kind of these two battling halves confronting the eye. And what happens with this sonnet? He doesn't wait until normally traditionally you have eight lines and then you have that turn, that change of emphasis after the eighth line going into the final sixth line, just after that halfway point. But here he really draws his line. The turn happens, bang, right the way through it. And there's a tension in the double pattern in that sense because of actually sentences. I spoke about the double pattern last week. The double pattern is how the form of the poem, especially with the sense of lines within the poem, coexists with the grammatical structure of the poem how the poem would look if you did just write it out as a paragraph um, and how the line breaks how the ends of the lines can create a double pattern or a double meaning um, in the sense that it can contradict or complement the grammatical structure of the poem so when he says her vigor flows like tides into my blood giving her strength erect against giving me strength erect against her hate. Her bigness sweeps my being like a flood. With three, three lines into a, into a quatrain made of, made of A, B, A, B end rhymes. So it's weird that the turn actually happens there, that the actual the, the grammatical sense and that idea, that particular idea, ends there with being like a flood. And then the sort of second half of the poem begins with that final line of a quatrain so there's a sort of jarring quality there there's a slight sense of disconnection and i think it really accentuates how jarring the turn is so there is the speech of the person who finds strength even uh, you know finds strength within america even though america is trying to kill him and then in the second half in the second set of seven lines he becomes the rebel and who's, who's fronting a king in state and not feeling terror, nor wanting to hate or ridicule it either, and seeing, seeing the end, the end of America as well, seeing, seeing the fall of America into the sands of time. And so, yes, that jarring contradiction is happening within it, which I think if you look at Claude Mackay, his life and his work, that contradiction is there. And I think that's something that's quite modernist in its own sense, taking those the contradictions of being and that great schism, that great jagged crack through society that we find replicated within ourselves. I'm waxing poetic, people. I'm waxing poetic. And putting that into his poetry, not trying to find some resolution with his life so that he can write resolved poems. No, finding that disconnection, finding that parallax, that slightly two different views that don't quite come together and putting them, making them central within his work. Now... I think that's plenty, isn't it? I think I've said plenty. It is time for me to call upon that great poet, Ric Flair, to give me his famous expression that he would call out from many a wrestling ring to show that I am no longer observing the codes and conducts of academic rigour, not that I did that much anyway, and that I am finally just wandering off on one it's time for me to wander off on one you heard that didn't you that was rick flair means i can i can wax a bit more lyrical and not worry too much about whether um my knowledge is wikipedic enough so i wanted to talk about the later part of george Mackay's life 
And the later part of George Mackay's life is really interesting because he was um, a, 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 a very committed atheist. And then he committed, he, he, he converted, just kick the microphone there. Sorry about that. He converted to Catholicism and other writers did this. And I, there is this idea of sort of atheistic Catholicism. Now, I don't know, um, not much is known of, of his conversion and maybe some more scholarly digging has to be done on my behalf, or maybe I have to find the right scholars of Mackay. But not much is known about why he, he converted to Catholicism, whether it was that old school kind of, like, I can see the end of the road, I've been very ill, um, and, I, and I need to have some hope in heaven type thing. I mean, that's, that's, that's people look down on that, but whatever. If that's people's choices, I, I am cool with that. And um, but I also think why Catholicism? It's interesting when when atheists become Catholics, and there are people, but they're also I think quite atheistic Catholics. This is why this is in the wandering off from one segment because I can't get into George George Mackay's mind and look at his motives. But I do find it interesting that um, often you get Catholics becoming born again Christians, but you get atheists becoming Catholics atheist intellectuals as well becoming catholics and i make that re i think that's a really interesting point um what is it about catholicism that to very religious people can sometimes be discarded for another form of christianity and but at the same time what is it about catholicism that makes an atheist go if that atheist isn't just you know in a very figurative and literal sense suddenly believing in the catholic god um, but what is it about Catholicism that makes an atheist go, you know what, I'm going to try that. Um, I think it is the differences between um, the born-again Christianity, which is normally a Protestant Christianity, and what Catholicism is, which is more of sort of a community Christianity. Let me define this. Um, Catholic, so, so Catholicism was very much about the church and the power of the church. If you were a Catholic, you were a member of the church, the church community, and the, the structure, the social structure and edifice that is to the church. The, the, the church is, is a structure, the Catholic church is this sort of structure, this community. And then you had Protestantism and Lutheranism, but these hark back to the individual's idea, the individual's relationship with God. It's no more about, it's no longer about the sort of social edifice and the social structure and how that relates to God. It is about the the, the human being themselves having their conversation with God and God speaking back, I guess, in whatever way he can or she can to to the believer. So why why does why does an atheist choose Catholicism in these instances rather than this sort of more born again direct relationship with God? Um also remember that Catholicism, it has, you know, it's all about those great cathedrals. It's about those, the stained glass and certain Puritan strains of Protestantism weren't about that. It was, no, you have your relationship with God. We do not create any idols. We do not create statues of Mary. We do not, um, we, we, are, we, we pare it down. There is just a cross even. The cross doesn't have a, this statue of, of Jesus being crucified attached to it. As far as I know, you know, some of those forms of Protestantism were about, no, we pare it down. There's, you know, it's a whitewashed church with clear windows and we have our relationship with God, our direct relationship with God. Whereas Catholicism, it is all about those wonderful chapels. It is all about um, 
the community um the, the spiritual community it is all about the structures it is all about how it is manifested and so the, the crude way the crude difference i paint between the two is that in catholicism god is on the outside and in protestantism god is on the inside that's probably very crude and i'm sure some theologians have just sort of nibbled their 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 elbow off their body on hearing that in absolute anguish and frustration at my stupidity but as far as i understand it you could be you could remain an atheist and still become a catholic because it doesn't matter what's happening inside your being it is about your actions and your words and the community that surrounds you you become a part of community and that is how you find god you become a part of the church and that is how you connect with god as opposed to you must believe at the very heart of your being and then you find God. And that's why I guess Catholics can become born again because they perhaps they feel that lack of it inside their being. Whereas an atheist might kind of go, you know what, I'm all right with this. I get all the good stuff of religion, but I don't necessarily have to be a believer in that most internal senses. My belief is defined by what, what is outside of me, what I say and what I do and how I communicate and how I invest and how I collaborate rather than the, the most intimate, monadic, individualistic, private part of me that God can see. That's what I think. So I think, for instance, confession, you know, um, why can't you just ask for confession? Why can't you just say sorry to God in that little circular part of your being? Maybe, maybe you can if you are. And God will forgive you if you are a Protestant. But as a Catholic, you must head into that church. You must walk into that confessional and you must um, talk to that um, Irish guy on the other side of it or whatever you come from. And, you know, so the ritual is there. You have to be part of that community. You know, you normally do it after a bunch of other people have gone in and out of that confessional on the day as well. So that's that's the reason. That's my theory behind Claude McCoy and others becoming becoming Catholics um it's it's sort of almost like a quite an atheist friendly faith <laughs> um i'm gonna leave it there thank you guys for listening if you've made it all the way through thank you very much if you listen to the other podcast thank you very much if you've shared the podcast if you've said kind things about it and given it nice reviews on 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 apple podcasts thank you very much and hey here's a thank you very much in advance if hey if you've enjoyed this then please tell someone about it talk about it on twitter write a nice review on itunes and if you want to diss me definitely go on twitter um it's poet nile that's my that's my preferred way of being dissed through twitter so that's p-o-e-t-n-i-a-l-l p-o-e-t-n-i-a-l-l at twitter and if you want to email me if you want to chat to me if you want to say hello or whatever or say well done, you can either at me at Twitter or you can email me if you have something, I don't know, some feedback or whatever, or just, you know, want to say whatever, then you can email me at rustysonnets at gmail.com as well. Thank you for listening. Have a good one. Bye bye.